Folks, welcome back to another episode of the Knicks World Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kyle Maggio, joined by my co-host, Sean Geddes and Mike Cortez. What's going on, gentlemen? Yeah. What's goody? Uh, we finally got a win. Uh, it was after our the ugliest win streak in NBA history had been snapped and Julius went into protocols. Uh, we lost a couple of uh, not-so-great and fun games, but Knicks bounced back. Uh, you know, we... Feels like we played the Pacers 60 times this season, but they came back to the Garden a little bit shorthanded. But Sabonis was still playing. I mean, Levert was out. Brogdon was out. Uh, who else was out? Uh, TJ Warren was out, but TJ Warren is always out, so I don't know if that counts. Doesn't count. Duarte uh, was out, though. Duarte was out. Uh, Lance Stevenson was playing. Lance Stevenson, who, as we record, is absolutely torching the Nets. Uh, it was the Kyrie Irving return tonight, and Lance decided that uh, whenever he's in a Pacers uni, he's going to be one of the greatest players of all time. So that's happening right now. But Lance played, Sabonis played, Miles Turner played, had a nasty dunk on us. But, Mike, I'm going to toss it to you first. Takeaways from last night. What did you like about last night? Takeaway, my main takeaway is this team really is, well, goes as far as Julius Randle takes them. And I don't mean that as Julius is the best player in the world. I just mean it as... He is this team's best player, no matter what. And as much as people get frustrated with him, they need him to play very well. And they need R.J. Barrett to play very well. And both those guys, that was the first time they went off for 30 apiece in the same game. And they won that game for the Knicks because everybody else only scored 40 points. The shooting is still a big problem here. So it just showed how important Randall is to me and the team. And same thing with R.J. And I think the key thing here is... Julius was hitting his mid-range, which has fallen off a cliff this year. So it was good to see him get back in the flow of that. He's always been decent and, I mean, good in other areas. So and that was never really a concern for me. It was more his offense. So it looks like those two days I tweeted yesterday, it looks like he had a sense of being. So it was good to see his energy back. That was really lagging towards the end. I don't know if he had COVID or not, but there was something clearly off with his energy. And R.J. Barrett, man, I – really love when he drives he's becoming like a little jr smith where you want him to drive more instead of just settling for shots and when he stands in the corner it's kind of useless for everybody involved so it was really good to just see him bully a pretty good pacers front court i mean miles turner leads the lead in blocks and sabonis is sabonis so it wasn't like he was scoring on kiefer kiefer sykes who's not six foot but yeah i was really impressed with those two and we'll get into the bad in a little bit but lucky lefties man they really turned up yeah, the, the lucky lefties went crazy, and it was beautiful to see. Um, you know, the moment Julius went in the protocols, I tweeted, RJ's about to go crazy. And we got to see him be used the way he should be used a little more, especially, like, in the first game, uh, in the OKC game, in the Raptors game, a little bit less. But, you know, I like the fact that we came out and went to RJ early and often. You know, first play of the game was a screen for RJ to get into the lane. He got to the rack, boom. Second play of the game, we come down, cross screen, get the ball to RJ on the block. He immediately goes to the basket and attacks, boom. And, like, that's the way we have to use RJ. We have to, like, I, I can't stand sticking RJ in a corner and turning him into Bruce Bowen. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help RJ. It doesn't help the team. So, like, the fact that, you know, we made it, we made an effort to get the ball to him early and often last night was really good. Um, having two guys drop 30 on the same night, hitting a total of four three-pointers is beautiful. Both shot 60% from the floor. Like, they did it efficiently. And I believe that, Going through RJ that way, like, you know, Kyle, you had your tweet about what the pecking order should be about 1A for Randall and 1B for RJ. Like, that really is what it should be because going through RJ more allows pressure to be taken off of Randall. Like, now he's not attacking double and triple teams every time he touches the ball. The lane's not as clogged. People are reacting. Or, you know, there's defenders converging. RJ's breaking the paint down and get some rotation going. Like, you know, there's just a lot of other factors rather than, and, and it's something else teams have to game plan for. And RJ's really good at it. He gets downhill well. He makes good decisions. 
He, you know, uses, he decelerates and uses his strength, whatever it may be. He's got a, you know, for everything that's said about RJ and oh, he's not athletic and he doesn't have wiggle. RJ's got a really quick first step. Like he often gets by guys who are directly in front of him and gets right to the basket and extends with that left hand. He's finishing with the right these days. Like he's doing it all. Like that one play on Miles Turner where he pulled him out, attacked him left, and then like a uh, fake turned around acted like he was going to fade away and then pivoted and finished with the right hand. Like, come on, what more can you ask for from a guy? So just being able to see him create those opportunities, the confidence he was operating with and the confidence we had in him. Like Julius was making it a point to get RJ the ball. You could see possessions come down. We're like, all right, we know we're getting into RJ right here. And that was making me so happy. I think we went away from it a little bit in the fourth um, and started having the Alec Burks and Julius Randle two-man game which I understood because Burks had the matchup of Sykes on him, but they weren't switching that. And we never really got that switch and we kept forcing it. And it kind of led to RJ standing on the side. Like he does when I don't like the offense as much. Um, he had one possession where he, he, uh, he drove to the, drove the lane and dished it off to Julius. Julius got a dunk. Then down the stretch in the fourth quarter, the one time we did let him run the pick and roll, he pulled up for the mid range jumper and knocked it down. So, you know, we just got to see other things out of RJ, even when the jump, like, you know, he wasn't the other those other 30 point games this year. RJ was six for eight from three, seven for eight from three. Last night he was two for five and got 32 points on 60%. So just him being in attack mode like that and us empowering him to attack is definitely going to make us a better basketball team. I mean, honestly, shooting wise, we kind of had another light. It wasn't as bad as the Thunder night, but we shot terribly. That's why that was even a game last night. So if we are able to put them two together doing what they're doing and get the rest of the guys hitting shots then, you know, it'll make us a much better version of the team we can be. Yeah, so Nick shot 21.4% from deep last night. They shot 6 of 28 uh, from deep. Four of those makes, as Mike pointed out, were from the lefties, uh, Barrett and Randall. Um, besides that, I like that they got to the line a bunch. Uh, you know, I think of our 28 free throws, uh, Julius and RJ combined for 14 of those attempts, made 10 of them. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, I, I generally agree with, uh, obviously I want to see RJ run more of the offense. I, it's never a takeaway from Randall or anything like that. But it to me, last year, this is, what, this is what's been confounding about this season is the, for all this talk about the misuse of Evan Fournier, which uh, I will always think is utterly hilarious. Um, I think the greatest issue that I've taken with that, that we we've all brought up on this podcast numerous times. We've all brought up on Twitter numerous times and had this conversation is that it's been a detriment to RJ Barrett because RJ Barrett is not supposed to just sit in a corner and shoot threes. RJ Barrett is not supposed to be an afterthought in the offense. RJ Barrett is not a guy who's going to make an impact in the game that way. Uh, he hasn't helped himself early in the season to be clear, but at the same time, you have to be more intentional with how you're trying to, run stuff for him because you're molding him and shaping him as an NBA player. And I felt like last season, they sort of found that identity where Randall and RJ could play off of each other. And then this season, they went totally away from it so that they can force feed Evan Fournier. And he isn't hitting the shots. And then RJ wasn't really in rhythm all year, stuck in the corner. He's not hitting his shots. And uh, the offense looked disjointed because it was disjointed. And as Sean pointed out, when you start to see all these different things that RJ can do with the ball and how he can run different parts of the offense, you kind of got a taste last night of why that dynamic had been working and why you need to keep doing it. Because Fournier is not able to create off the dribble. For all this talk, uh, nonsensical talk about him being a playmaker, him you know being able to pass, create for others, uh, him being able to create his own shot, his own offense. It's all a bunch of lies, to be honest with you, if you ever watched him in Orlando. And he, I mean, it, listen, after 40 games, I'm just preaching to the choir now because everybody's fed up with it because everybody's watched it for 40 games. He doesn't do nothing. He he drives. He can't beat nobody off the dribble. He's got no moves. Not even trying to be like no bag guy, but he's got no bag. He's got nothing. He does a half spin either way. He always gets blocked off by the defender, and then he throws up some horrific shot off, off the glass, or he's kicking out because he – has no space. Very simple. So I don't know why there was this insistence to force feed him look. He should have always been an afterthought in the offense. He should have always been in the RJ Barrett spot beginning this season where he's sitting in the corner, where he's waiting for an open look and nothing more because he can't provide anything else than that. Uh, we know he can't provide anything else in any other facet of the game, but we'll get back to that in 40 in a bit. The point is that when you watch the things that RJ can do and how dynamic he can be, 
you see how much it helps Julius Randle, like Sean pointed out. And they need to have a guy consistently helping Julius. You know, Julius obviously didn't help himself at you know, various points throughout the season, but at the same time, he's facing double teams, triple teams more than he did last year. Uh, he's amongst the top 15, 20 in the NBA in double space. Um, there's a lot of potential assists he leaves on the table every night because this team isn't shooting from deep what they did a season ago. Uh, it was touted everywhere by Knicks fans everywhere. We had all these guys who are shooting a high clip, you know, 40-ish percent from deep, and we had all these shooters, and, you know, it's going to maintain and da-da-da, and it hasn't. So when one of your leading assist guys is not having his shooters knock down shots, it's going to affect his game. It's going to affect the team's overall offense, and that's kind of what we saw. But, again, last night I thought, like, that's at least the floor game that you want to play. You know, you can work inside out a little bit better when you have R.J. Randall playing off of each other that way uh, because he keeps defense on their toes. And I didn't mind in the fourth quarter that they ran through Burks a little bit more too because the way I feel is R.J. got the ball plenty. They're not like, oh, you know, be grateful you got the ball plenty. But, like, the defense starts to tighten up and adjust because they're looking for certain things as the game goes on from R.J. or from Randall. So if you start to throw a different look at them with Burks, you hunt the mismatch a little bit at it. A lot of Knicks fans are complaining. I get it. You want to feed the hot hand, but like they still did go back to RJ when it mattered a little bit. And he's able to kind of close out that game. Um, so I, I just want to see more of that. I'm not saying I expect 32 and 30 every single night from those two, but like the game plan needs to be that. Like, I'm not saying even Fournier has got to play 20 minutes, get four shots. Like he could have more shots. Sure. But those shots got to be like open in the corner off a kick out. Where he's not doing much. Like, that's it. Julius always finds those guys. There's a clip going around from yesterday's game where all he did last night was like literally find those guys, jump passes. He's switching hands in the air, whipping this shit, trying to find these guys. Every time they're wide open, nobody's within three, four feet of them. Fournier just got to sit there, man. Let RJ and Randall do the work. You sit there and you eat off of that. That's it. They, they can't, since the Thunder game with giving RJ the ball more, they can't go back to not giving him the ball at least to some degree with manning this offense. You, like you, you would have to be, you know, blind or willfully blind or willfully stupid to, to see what he's able to do with the ball and the way he could work off Julius and then go, let's go back to the Julius 48 two man. That's going to work for us. You know, we, we've been struggling all year, but that's going to work for us now. Like at some point, like you drafted him third overall for a reason. You didn't draft him third overall to sit in the corner and to really not become nothing, but a guy who chucks up a couple threes and, sometimes plays defense. You, you drafted him because you had grander ambitions for him. And coming off a season like last year, you got to let him get more of those reps. So I feel like the only way is what they did last night. I got to see more of that now. I wanted to bring up one play from last night that seems to be polarizing, surprisingly. The fast break with Quickly and Toppin. A lot of people have taken... A few people that didn't watch, it was quickly and topping on the break. Ob does he kind of gives quickly the ball late. Quickly's at the rim, but then he goes all the way back to the top of the arc and misses a three. People have really run with that clip to call IQ trash and reason why he shouldn't start. What do you guys think about that? I didn't think it was that atrocious. And if anybody was at fault, I guess it was kind of Ob. But overall, I wasn't really mad at that shot. Maybe I just like IQ more than most. I don't know what we're I just want to get your thoughts. It's because we watch next games, Mike. That's why we don't care that much. Like, it was just a bunch of people reacting. Oh, this is trash. What is this? Basketball is being ruined. Blah, 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 blah. Somebody like, you know, somebody I'm, I've been cool with on the timeline for years. He was like going back and forth with me in my mentions. And he's like writing paragraphs. He's like, this is a bad shot, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yo, you know what? I'm fine with you saying that's a bad shot. Like, I mean, yeah, running back out to the three-point line to shoot a three isn't necessarily a good shot, but do I like Emmanuel quickly taking that shot? Yes, especially when the alternative was for him to go up off-vert with the layup that he got off a pass from Obi very late and get glassed into smithereens by Sabonis. Like, that wasn't realistic. That's not going to happen. You don't want him to go up with that. It's still a transition opportunity. And at the end of the day, he took a wide-open three-pointer. Emmanuel quickly taking a wide-open, like, everybody's like, oh, pull it out and reset like reset so that you can hopefully get a wide open three pointer for Emmanuel quickly. I don't know. Just take the shot. Like, go ahead. If you miss it, you miss it. Like, that's fine. It's okay. We've seen Emmanuel quickly hit shots like that plenty of times, which is why none of us are really that upset about it. I mean, 
you know, when the shots don't go in, sure, it looks worse. The shot almost went in. Like, it's not like he put it up and airballed it. Like, it, it hit, you know, it bounced on the iron a couple of times. But, yeah, like, I, I, I feel like that's being, you know, highly overblown. Um, but I think the reason is that most people don't watch Knicks games or watch Emmanuel quickly. So they just see a guy who ran out and tried to fade away three. But I've seen Emmanuel quickly hit that shot plenty of times. Matter of fact, I think I've seen him hit that shot in the playoffs. So I'm not tripping. Yeah, so uh, I I mostly agree. Um, I, I'm going to be the boomer here, and he should have he should have reset that shit. Uh, he, yes, I I know you're right about yes you you would want the shot to end up being probably an Emmanuel quickly three. You're not wrong at all. I'm not disagreeing that at all. It was simply the act of the rush into a step back three, despite it being open. I didn't love. However, it really was not that big of a deal. It got wildly overblown. I have no idea how it got so over. I've seen like he ruined basketball. This is this is the Steph Curry problem. This is what he's done. This is what he's inspired people to do. Yeah, I think it's a bit ridiculous. Uh, quick, uh, for better or for worse, he's a rhythm player. I've been saying that exact phrasing for it for a while because it's the truth. He felt he was in rhythm and he ran back there to shoot a three. You live and die by players like that sometimes, and we died by it there. It did not work out. If I had to really attribute blame. Uh, aside from, I think Quick should have just reset it. Hope he's got to pass the fucking ball, man. Uh, he's got to pass the ball earlier. Uh, he's been pretty good about his passing and assist in general, so this is not like some OB can't pass point. He's been pretty damn good there, especially in year two. But that fast break in particular, the ball should have came out earlier. Again, grand scheme, really not that big of a deal. Uh, the only point I didn't like was when people were like, oh, but he had a layup. Uh, he did not. He did not have a layup. Uh, as soon as he caught the ball, I think it was Sabonis, if I'm not mistaken, was sitting right there at the rim. Uh, he was going to get either. I mean, it was going to get swatted into the the tenth row, or he was going to get obliterated on a foul. There was no layup to be had there. So really, to me, the two options were: you're going to take it back out to reset, which I would assume was probably the plan. But when he saw he had a direct path and it was open, he probably figured he'll take it through. So it's really not that big of a deal at the end of the day. That's why you have him out there is to kind of have that game breaker type of effect where he could just splash those threes. It just didn't work out. If he makes that three on the flip side, it's all over the same outlets and everybody's going crazy because he hit this nasty step back three. It just did, you know, to make or mislead. You say it all the time in this podcast, it just didn't work. I, but I, I do, to, I'm, again, I'm surprised it blew up to the degree that it blew up, but I do I at least understand a small amount of some of the backlash. Like I saw, like a lot of the people responded were like coaches and stuff. I saw one guy quote TD just like, I would, I would have uh, torn my ACL trying to sell them out of the game. Like there, there was, there was some funny stuff to be said. Uh, there was some fair points that came up from it. I don't think anybody's like entirely right or wrong either way, but I mean, it, it, it's the manual quickly experience uh, really. But, uh, yeah, and plus for the for the angle of you know break, tearing your ACL to sub him out, like with someone like Emmanuel Quickly who you normally give the green light to, like and Tibbs has said it himself, like and I feel like to get a green light from Tibbs is hard work. So you know, to for someone you give the green light to, you can't get upset with players like that because if you do, you're gonna limit what you get from that guy. Like he's capable, and plus we're like last in the NBA in pace. Please shoot fast break three pointers. Like I'm fine with it. But I understood why I, I just think that, you know, I hate the way in some of these discussions and then like, if it's especially on a seven second clip, like all nuance is removed in these conversations and it's sickening. Yeah, pr pretty much. You're never going to get an accurate, uh, a measured take out of anybody responding to the one clip of the game. You know, uh, it, it, it is what it is. It, it was a little bit loony, but I, I understood some of the reactions. Uh, but one at least, uh, you know, Sean had touched on the R.J. Barrett playing better while Julius was out before we kind of shift gears on, on all of our other topics here. I, I did at least want to cover the, uh, the no Julius games. A lot of fans were clamoring, clamoring, screaming from the top of their lungs that Julius being out was, was finally going to be the key. We were going to see this beautiful ball movement. Uh, this offense was going to look better because there's no ISO Julius hunting for jump shots. It was just going to be beautiful, pure team basketball. And uh, it was not really the case, man. Simply was not. Uh, they, they didn't look great. Uh, RJ did. 
Obi did in the second game. Uh, otherwise, I was really not impressed with what I saw. I, I didn't see this uh, this amazing – after the Thunder game, they scored 80 points. All I heard was, well, they played the right way. If they just made all their shots, they would have been fine. Uh, we could say that about any game, man. Uh, we could say that about games where Julius had 15 potential assists that went to waste. Um, but, you know, you don't. You only bring these points up when it fits the narrative and the agenda, and I get that as a as an agenda man myself. I understand, trust me. But, you know, sometimes we got to just, you know, look ourselves in the mirror and, you know, remember, like, after a game like last night, why he's the best player on the team. Uh, the offense just got to make sense. Uh, and without it, they tried to make it make sense. I think really forcibly running the ball through RJ was the way to go. And I think uh, just kind of getting him back on track and feeling good sort of was a, a good easing into him being part of the game plan when Julius was back, as we saw last night. But I like what we saw because they ran a lot of pick and roll, which is what we talk about all the time in this podcast, uh, simple basketball play that the Knicks don't seem to like to run a lot. But let RJ operate out of the pick and roll. Uh, spread PNR, we're traditional with Mitch, like whatever you want to do, it, RJ is, is a good mind and a good IQ to do that. And he's capable of doing that. A lot of there's some lobs to Mitch, uh, just general the way he reads the offense, out of that action, out of those motions. Uh, it's got to be a staple in the offense, man. Uh, he's very successful at it. I I don't have all the numbers with me, um, you know, to kind of get into it with with those, you know, to back me up here. But it's very clear if you watch him that when RJ is running the ball and operating out of the pick and roll, he's much more successful than when he's just driving into two defenders uh, baseline or catch and shoot, you know, pulling somebody off the dribble and, and crashing into the paint. Uh, he's very obviously much better when you give him some of that space. You start that bigger role a little bit higher and you let him just kind of march in. And uh, as Sean mentioned about his first step, I think that's a good point because he has a quick first step and maybe he doesn't have the speed all the way through that people would like. But once he has that quick first step and takes you off the dribble, he's good at being kind of patient and kind of changing his tempo a little bit, decelerating a little bit, and kind of knows when to either keep going the speed he was going or slow down and, he, you know, pick his spots that way. And really the only way he gets to do that is out of the pick and roll. So I like seeing that at least a couple of games Julius was out. I didn't have too, too many takeaways other than RJ played really well. They ran the style of offense for him that I liked. And uh, Obi disappointed me the first game in his opportunity, but in the second game I thought he played – Really, really well. He played 45 minutes. I think he had 19, 6, and 6, something like that. Uh, you know, a lot of good passes and things. So that's what you wanted to see out of Obi, at least in one of those games. Uh, and we got to see it. And we did get to see more of what we thought and expected from RJ. So I, I don't know what you guys felt about those two games or if you had any other takeaways. But, I mean, that's kind of where I was at. It just showed me – I mean, kind of tying back to how we started, it just showed – how much Julius does beyond scoring because obviously Obi can fill the scoring void if he's given the time, but there's really a lot of stuff like playmaking, defensive effort, just defense overall. That's a lot of stuff that you're missing when Julius isn't there. You're missing someone that can get to the rim against the thunder. They scored 80 points and that whole game, the thunder had zero rim protection. They could have lived at the rim and RJ was the only one really getting there with any success. And if Julius is in that game, I find it hard to believe that he doesn't dominate. So that was what really stuck out to me. Um, Deuce starting over quickly. Again, that, that was another. I mean, I love Deuce. I think he should have filled Quickly's role and quickly moved up the starting lineup. But I digress. Overall, it's it wasn't great. And like I said, it ties back to you really need Julius and Randall and um, RJ if they're going to be that team that they were last year, because without either of them, they, without, if one's off, it looks like the whole team just short circuits. Yeah, no, um, I, it, it was very weird how people, you know, but everybody's been looking for somebody to put things on and people have been blaming Julius for everything. And I've wanted more out of Julius, but what I was excited for um, just in getting to see it differently was for RJ to be used better, for us to go to RJ more. And we did. Uh, he was 10 for 20, 26 points. He was one for eight from three, which is highly unfortunate. But I think that just speaks to how dominant he was getting to the rack. Um, he had a great game. I And in watching that game, I, we were all blown away, myself included, blown away by SGA. I'm just like, wow, this guy is nice. And I truly believe that RJ outplayed him. Like, SGA had, I think, 23 points on nine for 24. 
and he was two for seven from three. RJ had 26 on uh, 10 of 20, and he was one of eight from three. And the narratives, like even even people within the fan base, like the way that they were speaking on RJ versus the way that they were speaking on SGA, was truly one of the nastiest things I've ever seen with my own eyes. It was disgusting. And like just so between that OKC loss and the Raptors loss and just the conversations that were happening, people overreacting, people like, oh, I'm giving up, I'm done with the Knicks, blah, blah, blah. It's like, bro, like we don't have Julius Randle. We just found out right before the game that we don't have Kemba Walker. We started Deuce McBride today. Not really sure why he did that. I think Tom Thibodeau really has something against him quickly. He just refuses to start him. Don't really understand it. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I can't. Um, I also think that Obi didn't really get a fair shot in that first game. It was weird to me because he came out and I felt like he was aggressive. He was getting to the line. He didn't make the free throws at the rate he should. But he was getting to the line. He was attacking the boards. Uh, he ended up not playing 30 minutes that night. I'm not sure how Obi Toppin doesn't play 30 minutes when Julius Randle's not in the building. Um, and, you know, the Toronto game, we saw a lot more out of him. So that was nice. Uh, and then he played 10 minutes, less than 10 minutes against Indiana, which is killing me. But um, yeah, just it, it, it's tough to win again. Like that Thunder game, I just chalked it up to okay. What I did like though, we moved the ball well, and I feel like that you know, and I feel like everybody tries to go to an extreme. Like oh, either it's either oh, this game's gonna prove we don't need Julius, or this game's gonna prove that you guys are all wrong and Julius never did anything wrong. And it's like mm, neither one of those has to be the thing. Like the ball did move well, guys got good looks. You know, we created good opportunities. We just couldn't hit any shots. And yes, had Julius been there, we could have exploited, like, not hitting shots. Just like last night, we couldn't hit shots. But it didn't kill us because Julius and RJ are getting to the basket. Julius and RJ are breaking down the defense. So when RJ is breaking the defense down by himself, it was more difficult. Had Julius been there, we would have had another guy who could have gotten to the paint, who could have finished, all those things. Like, and it made us a more versatile team. So I think that, you know, I was hoping to see more growth from guys or more guys stepping up in Julius's absence for things to go a little more smoothly. I had very low expectations for the Raptors game. Kyle was saying the same thing before the game. Like we just, we are, I'm traumatized by Toronto. Like I, I don't like playing in Air Canada Center. Um, we haven't won there in a very long time. I just feel like I felt low. I had to start the office from season one, episode one after that game. Like I just felt low. So I had very low expectations for that game. But um, I think it was nice to see RJ step into his role more and for us to give him that role a little more. And if that, if that's all that came from that, then great. And Julius stepping right in and finding himself as he came back and being able to come back the way that he did from protocols was dope too. So, um, yeah, I just think that people need to stop overreacting to like every single game or like trying to like, you know, support their narrative after every single game and just watch the games, bro. And like, you know, build intelligent and reasonable, standpoints i don't know toronto terrifies me uh they terrorize us i would be so thrilled if we never had to play toronto again uh they they zone up when they should zone up against us and they know that we're going to be fearful of it they know exactly when to blitz us they know exactly when to go back to man they know exactly when to rotate early uh it feels like no matter when you pass the ball against Toronto, when you're the New York Knicks, there's like two guys waiting for you. It's, it's a it's an unbelievable situation. Doesn't matter if you beat one guy off the dribble, two guys appear. You pass it out to the open guy. Suddenly, there's two guys there. It's a terrible situation to be in. I think they defend us better than any team in the NBA. I want no parts of Toronto. Almost any time we have to play them, we we don't have their number at all. We don't have a number of them. We have nothing. They just. They, like they they kill us dog like they embarrass us like every they go in knowing that they're gonna whoop our ass and we know they're gonna whoop our ass and we can't ever figure them out it's a, it's like it's confounding aren't you guys alarmed i feel like this is toronto was the first i think toronto we haven't won in 12 years earlier against the spurs it's like that's the first time they won in 15 years i'm starting to think to myself who the fuck do we win like we win like 20 to 30 games a year who the fuck are they winning against? Because Philly, the the first time we beat them in four, I guess it is. Every time we beat someone, it's like, this is the first time they beat them in 15 years. I mean, 15 games. It's like, bro, like, that's a lot of fucking games. Like, who the hell are we beating? It's bad. And Toronto, like, not only do they have such a good scheme, but they have so much length on their roster. It's ridiculous. Like, their entire roster has, like, a seven-foot wingspan. It's like, okay, outside of Fred Van Vliet, who's also a great defender. So, like, I just knew it. And I was like, damn, RJ's going to be out there as a number one option with, like, 
no real number two for real. Like, as we saw in the OKC game, he was the only one that was able to break the defense down and get to the basket. So I was like, they're going to throw a lot at him, and people are going to kill him for it. You already ready for this one? Whoa, hold on. Evan Fournier had 20 points against the Raptors. What do you mean he didn't have any help? You stop. You know, someone said that. Someone, someone, I mean, I know we have to take a break, but someone really tried to use that 20 point performance and a blowout loss is like, he's not bad. He's actually very good. Have some shame. 20, zero, 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 zero. Zero. And had the audacity to get on the podium and tell us how much he can do and how he used to play point guard. <laughs> it was like, like, like stop. He just had zero assists. And then I saw like the further, I forgot who it was, but somebody like further broke the stats down and it was like potential assists and all. And he didn't even have anything there. It was, it was gross. It was the most gross 20 points I've ever seen in my life. I hate that guy. He does not pass though. But on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to talk about uh, the Evan 48 disaster class that has been the 2021 22 season so far. Catch you guys on the other side. And we are back. So, uh, a certain employee of the Knicks wall, uh, I will protect his identity. He may or may not be on this podcast, but somebody put out a graphic today of one Evan Fournier and his zero points, four shot attempts, one rebound, I think, what, two assists, one steal, and 22 minutes of intense cardio at Madison Square Garden last night, and a hell, a hell storm was rained down upon uh, the Frenchman. Uh, and, I mean, people were upset, uh, rightfully. Your second-highest-paid player on the team is a regular disappearing act. Most nights, it seems, he scored, uh, I think, below, or he scored single digits or below 15 points, something like that, uh, 15 times this season. I forgot what it was. Uh, basically, Brian Giberman texted me last night, and he said, Evan Fournier, is worse than I think even you thought, and that is pretty damn impressive. And I would like to agree. I was extremely low on Evan Fortier. Pretty much everything that I said has been accurate, and even then, I am stunned at how little he contributes uh, by way of effort, by way of simply running more than a, a half jog around the court. Um, I don't know if if his legs or his hips or his mobility doesn't allow him to run faster. He's always stuck in second gear, but he just does not have it. He does not get after it, whatever it is. Uh, basketball, playing defense, uh, a rebound, a long rebound especially, which we never get when Fournier is out there. I wonder why. Um, uh, like Sean just pointed out before the break, you know, uh, he had like no potential assists in the Toronto game, just gunning 20 point zeros everywhere else. It's hard to find a worse second option in the NBA this season. It's hard to find a worse regular starter in the NBA this season than what Evan Fournier has been. I can't really even say providing. I mean, really, what he's not providing to the Knicks so far. Um, it's been a, a, a true disaster class. Uh, I think a lot of Knicks fans are really high on him, uh, having only watched him play against the Knicks. And at first, I used to say that as a joke, and people have since come out to say, well, yeah, no, I, I was kind of just going off when he played the Knicks and basketball records. And I, I just want to implore you guys, uh, before you take strong stances on players, of which you will look silly to just watch them in their professional NBA careers in games that were not against the Knicks, watch a Tuesday game of Magic versus uh, the Pistons. You know, get, get a feel for what he does on a normal night. Uh, those are the games you should be watching. Uh, and if you want to, you know, have your opinion taken seriously, you should, you know, maybe watch the games. Everybody gets an attitude when I say this, but then they don't watch the games. And then you show your asses. And, and it's a disappointment for us all, really. So I, I don't like to be here. I would rather be up here doing what I, I love to do, which is apologize to you guys when I'm wrong for a take that I have. I love getting up here and go, hey, my bad. I was wrong. He's falling out. He's playing great. I was wrong but you know seems like as the years go on it's less and less than i'm able to do that and i'm just more and more right and nobody's more disappointed about it than me nobody enjoys it less than me but evan 48 has been stinking it up and we got to talk about it uh he cannot be a, a number two or even a three or even a four option on this team where you show up once a week once every two weeks to do the one job you have which is to play offense and shoot the basketball um and he can't even do that I mean, he's shooting career lows, to be certain, 
But the bigger issue is that he has a 20-point game, which you watch him and think, well, he's stinking it up, but he scored 20 points. And then the next game, he fouls it up with zero or two or five or something ridiculous. Uh, you can't get paid 18 million American dollars, 18 million USD. Uh, spare me the team option nonsense. Spare me the, oh, he has incentives nonsense. He's the second highest paid player on the team, and he never plays like it. He just does not. Unless he plays the Celtics, he looks like the worst player on the floor. I, I hate to even do it because I, I bring this point up a lot, but if you remove the Celtics games, his stats look even worse, even more abysmal because he's scoring so little typically that if you remove the, what, 64 combined points that he scored in the two games against the Celtics, things probably look pretty grim, to be quite honest with you. So I don't know what else we're supposed to do here other than, and, and I want to talk about his gameplay, but there, there's a number of things we got to cover here. Um, but I think he's just got to go to the bench. I, I said this the last time we had this big 48 talk on this podcast. Uh, I know, look, I would love to banish him. I said this exact line, but you got to at least try to start him off the bench because this shit is just not working. And Tibbs, earlier in the season, didn't play him six, what, six games in a row, something like that, or six out of ten games, something like He didn't play him in the fourth quarter, second half, whatever. And then we saw it again last night. He didn't play him down the stretch, right? So what more do you got to see? We're 40 games into the season now. This is not like, oh, maybe he'll get it going. We are directly halfway into the season. Like, something, it is January 5th, 2022. The season ends in April if we don't make the playoffs. Shit is real right now, and we need guys who are going to play and play well. If, if it's not Evan Fournier, go to the bench, my guy. The start, you're overextended. The starters, you cannot play with them. Opposing starters, you cannot play against them. Rookies, you're getting the Pacers, for example. Our, our interior defense, amazing last night. Sabonis, nothing, nothing. Miles Turner. One vicious, disgusting, amazing throwdown. Nothing else. Did nothing. Jack shit last night. Great interior D. We got fucking smoked on the perimeter by three dudes who have no business smoking us. Uh, we know about uh, Keeper Sykes, but in addition to that, I just want to quickly, quickly go back to it. Uh, Dwayne Washington. Dwayne. So Keeper Sykes is 22, 4, and 6. Okay, uh, Tory Craig had 15 and seven. Dwayne Washington Jr. had 17, two and four. Those are all guys who played designated guard or wing positions. You cannot be getting dog walked by Kiefer Sykes. Have a little bit of pride. Have a little bit of respect. No disrespect, uh, especially to our boy Ned. This is you know Kiefer Sykes is his guy, but. You can't go into a game going, oh, we got these guys shorthanded and then let them hang all of not, not just one guy. Because, like, you could have told me Sykes was going to go off the morning of the game and I would have believed you because that's just what happened in the Knicks games. But three of those guys putting up the same numbers that the guys who missed the game, that they put up the same kind of production, it's inexcusable. And this perimeter defense has been inexcusable and laughable and embarrassing all season. And it's the reason why the defense has been bad. The point of attack defense hasn't just been bad. It's been non-existent. And Fournier has been a big, big part of that. Now, Sykes and them cooked a bunch of different guys last night. So it is what it is. But for 22 minutes, somebody was out there just hand-holding these guys to the rim. So I've had enough. Um, I mean, I had enough since I tweeted in the summer, but I've especially had enough now. Uh, I, I did it, okay? I sat through 40 games. I was mostly patient. I don't know what else you guys want me to do. Uh, just bring this man off the bench. Am I right? Am I wrong? I mean. You're right. And I'm going to let Sean go squirt to earth in two seconds. I just, I'll just write off some stats because I have a feeling we're all on the same page with this. And shout out Kyle and Drew. I remember the pod right after the signing. You guys both said this was dog shit. And guess what? It ended up being dog shit. So just to run through some numbers, Kyle, it was actually 15 games flat where he scored, he has scored single digits. That's one. Last, Hold on, that, that just right there. 15 games <laughs> un, in single digits is disgusting. We play, what, 40 games now? Yeah. And 15 not of those? 40, to be honest. That, he's appeared in 37, yeah. He's playing 37. I think they played 38. That is disgusting, bro. It's this, <laughs> your, your one job 
the one job that you got paid to do. We we knew you weren't going to do the other stuff. And 15 times, bro, the season isn't even halfway over yet. 15. That's almost 50%. That's so He's almost gross. at 50%. Now, last 10 games, and keep in mind, this within these 10 games, I would say I think it has three of his – yeah, has three of his top five, or yeah, three of his top five scoring performances of the season. Even with that, he's averaging 13.8 points per game. He's shooting in his last 10, 39.2% from the field, 32.9% from three, 70.6 from the line, and he's averaging 30 minutes a game. This is all with he's not oh, playing oh. no minutes. Like this is and then overall, just to tie this all back in. He has the third most minutes on the team, trailing only Julius and RJ. 13, uh, I'm sorry, 12.8 points per game, 2.6 rebounds per game, and 1.8 assists. Gentlemen, this guy is a fucking bum. All right, Sean, you can go. Evan, for- that, that sound effect was perfect. Evan Fournier is truly a bum. The fact that he's averaging 30 minutes a game over the last 10 games is criminal because as I, and I, you know, I've gotten to the point now, like during, after the Thunder game and post game pouting, people were like, oh, Fournier was trash today. And I was like, honestly, bro, like this wasn't even his worst game. Like I don't even have much to say anymore. Like I'm just tired of beating the dead horse. I'm tired of repeating myself. It's going to be that way until he starts playing. He is who he is, um, you know, and we let him get away with it. Where to Denny Green. It's really sad. But he can't keep getting away with this, truly. Like, it's really getting out of hand. Um, I saw a Tommy Beerstat earlier, I think, that said in his last 93 minutes, he has five rebounds. Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you, what are you really doing out there? And, if, yeah, like 30 minutes a game over the last 10 is crazy because since November, I have been calling for this man's job. Like, loudly. A lot of us have. But I said that I didn't want to watch him play basketball anymore 15 games into the season. We are now at game approaching game 39, and we have the same problems. If anything, it's only been accentuated. It's worse. It's worse than it was before. And it's it's we're getting less defense. We're getting less effort rebounding-wise. We're getting less consistency offensively. Like, nothing has improved. So there's no point where it's like he's going to stick his foot in the sand and everything's going to turn around. At some point, like, you know, bring him off the bench. I know that's the realistic, you know, and I don't even know how realistic it is because it's not happening. But that's the realistic solution to this is bring him off the bench and blah, 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 play him like 15, 20 minutes. But honestly, the best version of this team and my dreams, what the, the parts that make me sad when I wake up because it's not real, is Evan Fournier collecting DNPs. I don't want to see his jersey anymore. I want to see him tucked in a warm-up for the entire game, cheering on his teammates or not cheering on his teammates. Don't care. Leave him on the bench. He shouldn't be playing. He's offering us nothing. We've got guys who are better than him at Grimes is better than him at everything that we need him to do. Um, Deuce McBride, Deuce McBride was a, a plus 40 with zero points. That's how you give me zero points. Give me zero points and put a lot of pressure on the ball to the point where you completely disrupt the other team's offense. Do something. Like if you're going to give me zero points, it should be like, yo, you did something else so well that we had to leave you in the game, even though you didn't score. Like, you, like it's ridiculous. Like, the homie Julito got courtside seats the other night, and he was more active in the game than Evan Fournier was. Like, that that doesn't make any sense. How do y'all have the same amount of points? It, like, it, it just doesn't make any sense, bro. And at this point, it's a matter of, like, what are we waiting for? And I've been saying that for months. So, like, but really, what are we wait? What is it going to take? Because clearly, there's no way that any stat, any statistical breakdown you give, like you said, the last 10 games, that included, would you say two or three of his highest scoring performances this season? Three. The last 10 games included three of your highest scoring performances this season, and you're averaging under 14 points and shooting under 30, under 40% from the field. What are you doing? That, and you're only good at offense. Supposed to, supposedly, we were, we were taking a chance. We're like, all right, the defense might tail off a little bit, but hopefully he can at least be passable. You've been no, nowhere near passable, like F minus level defensively, and still haven't been nearly a positive offensively. All of our on-off numbers, everything, everything points to Evan Fournier being terrible and a detriment to the team, yet we keep trotting him out in the starting lineup. 
And then you've got them not closing games for whether it's a, even when guys were out, we had half the rotation on protocols and he still was getting sat down in the fourth quarter for Deuce McBride. Why are we still starting that guy, bro? Like, come on. I, I get the whatever politics. Cool, bro. The Hawks gave Gallo, what, four years, 72 mil. He comes off the bench because it's best for the team. You can't just die on the hill. You can't double down on a bad move. Like four years, 78 million, poorly spent on the bench is way better than four years, 78 million, poorly spent on the floor. I'm going to keep saying it until he stops playing. It doesn't make any sense, bro. It really doesn't. At one point early in the season, everybody was like, oh, you're overreacting. It's too early. You never know, blah, blah, blah. Then as Kyle said earlier, the people who say he's being misused, whatever, what? I don't care, bro. I don't. I, I've wa- I've seen enough. We watch the games. We watch the games. We know what happens. We watch the games. We see the box score. He fails every single test you can come up with, basketball wise, and we continue to start him as a team with playoff aspirations. It makes no sense. It's just not good, man. I don't know how else I'm supposed to say it. I've been saying saying it since. Uh, we were interested or, or we're going to sign him. He's just not a good player. And people make this case about the misuse and all these specific play types that need to be run for him to be successful. You got to understand he was successful in Orlando because nobody else in the wing was doing anything the entire time he was there. And you're all about this. Oh, he was, he shot so much, you know, he was above, uh, above average with his efficiency uh, in seven years with Orlando, he shot 45% from the field, 37% from deep. At best, a high value that's pretty much league average. That's not above average. That's not a guy that I'm like, oh, that's a killer efficiency. Uh, and maybe if it was just three-pointers, right, 45% from the field, 40% from deep. Sure, sign me up over seven years. That's pretty consistent. But what if you actually look, it was mostly just too good. His last two years in Orlando, he shot the ball a little bit better, 39 to 40% from deep. Before that, there's a lot of 34%, 35%. This is this is who he is, man. Like people hate hearing that, but like guys are who they are. And also, when you sign with a new team, you don't always sign with the new team to have all of the offense run exactly the way that's always perfect for you at all times. Yes, a coach should want to mix in some of those things to help you be successful. But when all of our data shows that you are open or wide open on a majority of your shots, and you signed up to be here to be a release valve. Julius Randle to hit those shots you got to do your job it's not going to be the same scenario the same scheme for you as it was in Orlando it's just not you got to come here and you got to do your job you got to fit in and figure out how to be good in the way you got to fit in I don't know why uh you know player accountability only works sometimes with this fan base uh when it's Julius Randle we got to trade him so that Opie Toppin can start uh we got to move on to the next thing already but when it's Evan Fournier, maybe maybe in game 50 of the year, he'll get going. Maybe in game 60 of the year, he'll get going. Maybe in game 72 of the year, he'll get going. I don't know why we do this for some people, but not for others. I, I will say, thankfully, the fan base is starting to wake up. Uh, they're starting to be, you know, expectedly and, and what they should be, which is frustrated and annoyed because, look, I mean, winning and scaling up, you know, phase by phase in the NBA is not easy. And I get that. There's nothing wrong with making a mistake as you try to do that. It happens. Not every move is going to be perfect. But you got to know when you, when you fucked up. And the Knicks fucked up. And, you know, it seems like today some reports were coming out. And uh, it seems like the front office is distancing themselves just a little bit from the Evan Fournier signing. And um, I have a couple thoughts on that, but, you know, first on Ian Begley's the putback with SNY, he had Mark Berman on today, uh, and it seems like the what they discussed was Scott Perry kind of didn't want Fournier, and, and he was kind of pushing to go take a look at uh, DeMar DeRozan a little bit more, which, big shock for me, longtime Scott Perry uh, hater, uh, do not want him in the front office anymore. Uh, I, I just assumed that he was bringing in more Orlando dudes, but if this is true, where he didn't really, he wasn't so keen on Fournier. Hey, been good for Scott. Uh, Pride just took a stand and we stopped recycling magic players. That that would be great. Uh, I, you know, we can circle back to the DeRozan thing, but the other thing I wanted to mention while we're talking about the reports is Jake Fisher from the Bleacher Report 
uh, a guy who notably broke a lot of accurate stories, including the 48 thing in this offseason with the Knicks. You know, he kind of pointed to, well, the front office wasn't so keen on Fournier. This is more of a Tibbs, a Tibbs guy. Tibbs wanted Fournier, singled him out as the guy he wanted. So here's my thing. Even if that were true, you are the front office at the end of the day. You're Leon Rose at the end of the day. And Tom Thibodeau says, I want Evan Fournier. That's the guy I want. You still got to sit there with your, with your front office team, your cap strategists, and go, okay, well, what's the number? What's the term that we're going to throw to his agent that we feel comfortable with? And they thought three years, 54 million with a team option to make it four to 78 with incentives was a reasonable figure. And I just want to know who they were bidding with because we've since learned they were bidding with nobody. Seemed like nobody was trying to go higher than like three for 40 ish. Like nobody was trying to go anywhere near what the Knicks were offering, even for the three year. So I don't know why we felt the need to like, if this was like a Norman Powell, something like that, then like, yeah, I would have understood like, okay, you got to open up the checkbook a little bit more, right? You got to maybe start out with a good offer. I, I don't get giving Fournier an amazing offer. Nobody else was bidding with him for uh, when we wouldn't even, again, it's verified now. They didn't even try to meet with a Fred Van Vliet, which I'm going to keep going back to because you can, you cannot sign a Fred Van Vliet. Not even picking up the phone is inexcusable. And you just got to do due diligence. Pick up the phone. Fred, hey, buddy, we want you. Oh, what's that? You're staying in Toronto. Hey, you know what? We tried. Hang up. Okay. That's all it takes. But if you're not even, there was nothing there. There was nothing there. That's what bothers me. So, I one hand, on one hand, I like the front office is now feeling the public pressure. going, oh, hold on. This wasn't our idea. This was Tom Thibodeau. But on the other hand, you signed off on it. You threw Tom Thibodeau did it come and march into your office and go, oh man, we got to sign this guy. It came to me in a dream. We got to sign this guy for four years, $78 million. I just know it. That's the number. That's the year. That's what we got to do. That's not what happened. He just, he just said, that's the guy that I want. And then they threw a number out. So, you know, hopefully, all I can say is hopefully if they're putting this out there today, it seemed like from multiple spots that, you know, that it's, a signal that something's going to change and that hopefully they reverse course on this. However, they got to do it. I think it'd be hilarious if after all these years of being cautious and refusing to trade draft picks or capital or young players that they now had to attach a pretty decent pick to get rid of Evan Fournier. But again, it is what it is. Uh, this is why I've been saying scream, screaming trade the picks for a while. But uh, what, what are you guys, I guess, what are your reads on those reports? Because I, it's a little bit funny. We're not even, like we said, at game 40 of the season, and now you got the front office kind of coming out and being like, this is, this is Tibbs. Well, let me defend Tibbs, because Tibbs also wanted to keep Reggie Bullock, who Fournier pseudo replaced, so the front office had between those options to choose, I guess, and they sided with Fournier, so you are, I'm not absolving Perry for sure, because Perry's been around. I'm pretty sure it was Perry around for Tim Hardaway because everything you just described was exactly what happened when we signed Timmy away from the Hawks. I, I believe overbid. I believe Tim Hardaway. Perry wasn't there yet because I believe Steve Mills acted. This sounds like a criminal, uh, like a criminal thing. He acted alone <laughs> by himself as the executive and decided that he had to go back, go back and break uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. out of Atlanta. I do remember that pretty vividly. It was, it was a isolated uh, Steve Mills thing. Because I okay. think that's what made David, David Griffin not take the job. I think well, thank just, God like, for that. Yeah, just Steve, Steve Mills going rogue. But yeah, I mean... Well, I, at it, least he scared it, off one snake oil salesman. Yeah. David Griffin sucks. Um, but yeah, so I will, I will defend Tib there. But I think it's like you guys said, everything you said, Kyle, it's he's not worth it. I think the front office realized he's not worth it. Let's try and offload him. I said jokingly in Slack, I think it was one of his shitty performances. I'm at the after point the where I would, game. it was after the Warriors game. I said, and now I'm starting to be more serious, which is scary. I would pay John Wall. John Wall's due like 47 million. That's not what, that's not plan A. This is like plan F, but I will do it. I will pay John Wall $47 million for next year if it means I never have to see Evan Fournier in a Nick jersey again. That's how far I'm willing to go. What I actually want is like a Cam Reddish, but I will settle for that. And another one more thing, and I'm going to lob it to Sean. You clowns who said, how dare you even consider throwing $20 million a year at Lonzo Ball 
or even worse, I wasn't part of this crowd, but DeMar DeRozan is a bum compared to Evan Fournier fit-wise. I saw that a lot. What are you watching? What the fuck are you watching? It haunts me thinking of what we could have been if we signed Lonzo Ball instead of Evan Fournier. I wanted Lonzo Ball so badly. I studied ball in the family to try to get closer with the family. And, you know, and so, yeah, it really hurts. Uh, the, I'm not going to be the revisionist history guy. I didn't want DeMar DeRozan here. Um, he's playing MVP-level basketball. I'm really happy for him. Really beautiful to see. But uh, I didn't want a guy who was over 30, going to command a lot of money, uh, didn't shoot threes. And all of a sudden now he's like a 60% three-point shooter, which is nuts. But, like, didn't shoot threes, wasn't a great defender, uh, needed the ball in his hands. There were a lot of reasons I didn't want DeRozan, so I'm not going to act now like I did before. Um, also, hearing that Scott Perry didn't want Evan Fournier is fuel for my agenda because I am Scott Perry Hive, just because everybody else is always slandering him, and I feel like he doesn't deserve it. He came here, and the moment he got here and had his introductory press conference, he kind of did everything he told us he was going to do, and I respect him for that. Um, Otherwise, though, yeah, I mean, with the front office coming out and saying, I, I don't I don't really care who did it. Like Kyle said, like, either way, you guys paid him. Like, and, and honestly, if the choice was between if we got knocked out in the first round and we were trying to come back as a better team and our options were, hey, Reggie Bullock or Evan Fournier, that's bad practice. Like that already is, is, an, is an issue because we drafted a guy, 25th pick, who's better than both of them. So... I, I really, you know, I really wish we would have just punted the money, honestly. I mean, I, I would have loved to get Lonzo if he wasn't available. Cool. I think you could have made a play for him. Honestly, if you gave Evan Fournier damn near 20 mil a year, I would give Lonzo 25 mil a year, and that would have beaten Chicago's offer. But that's revisionist history. It's like, oh, we could have done that, hindsight, whatever. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bad move, and I just hope that we're able to get out of it, and I hope that it doesn't cost us too much to get out of it. I can't imagine anybody is taking Evan Fournier for anything right now. Uh, I don't even think he's a contract you can throw into something because he's such a negative asset. And it's almost like, you know, it's almost like what they say about buying a car. Like, it's like the moment we drove him off the lot, like it's just been depreciating ever since. And it's really, really sad. And sometimes people are like, oh, and they, they would say the same thing with Alfred last year. And it would like really grind my gears because I don't think people know how like basketball or the NBA works. But when I'm like, yo, sit Evan Fournier down, they're like, oh, we got to leave him out there so he can raise his trade value. It's like, what part of what you're watching do you think is raising his trade value? Put him away and let no one see him, and hopefully they'll take a flyer on the fact that he was once a good shooter. Like, right now, all you're doing is just tanking the value. And then especially when reports come out where the front office and coach are pointing fingers at each other, like, hey, you wanted him. That's not going to raise the value at all. So, I mean, hey, if you can throw him in the, in the trade and attach a first to him, oh, my. If you get Nerlens, if you get him and Nerlens out of here in the same deal, I am going to run to Manhattan. Like, I'm going to be so happy. So, uh, I don't want to watch either one of those guys play basketball anymore. But Evan Fournier, first and foremost, like, that, get him out of here because apparently, like, I think the front office has to move him. And I'm, I'm glad because, you know, when, I, when people say, oh, you know, he's playing because he got paid, at least the front office is distancing themselves from the decision. It means they don't need to die in the hell of him being on the court, I would hope. So, you know, I mean, either stop playing him or move him so that Tibbs stops playing him, whatever it may be, whoever's fault it is. I really don't care whose fault it is. I just don't want to watch him play basketball. I don't even care, honestly, if we leave his contract on the books the whole time. Don't care. Jerome James him. Have him sit on the bench the entire time and collect his check. I don't care. As long as he's not on the court. I'd prefer to get rid of him, but if you if that's dead money, at, like where you said plan F to bring in John Wall and pay him 47 mil, I'm down. Honestly, plan G, if you can't move off the contract and nobody's stretch him. I know it'll cost a lot of money for a very long time, but that's the point I'm at. I don't care i'm willing to sacrifice that money in order to not have to see him on the floor because that would be addition by subtraction and we'd be a better team for it it'd be like hey whatever money it costs to stretch him you're spending that money to be a better team it's like free agency just in reverse yeah so i mean that's mostly what i want to ask you at this point i mean we could i don't know if you want to waste time thinking about fantasy fournier 
trades that probably aren't going to work because we're going to be more hopeful about what teams might want. I've seen people just be like, oh, send that Charlotte second rounder and, and Fournier to whoever, and let's just get off this contract. Nobody's taking it for a second rounder, bro. And, everyone, and then I, I got some replies this morning like, yeah, but, you know, that, that third year is going to be an expiring. So I'm like, well, right now we're not even halfway through the first year. So, you know, I, I don't know that we can make the expiring argument when we're two years away from expiring. I don't know if you guys know how time works, but we're quite some ways away from that. Uh, you know, like it's, and then everyone goes, oh, yeah. And everyone always does the, yeah, yeah. But, there, but there's guys making similar money to him. I'm like, yeah, yeah. But there's guys who aren't playing as much and as badly as him. So, I mean, no matter which way you slice it, he, he's bad, bro. You're going to have to attach a first to get rid of him at this moment, like very easily. I don't care which first you think it should, it should be. Like the starting conversation is like, hey, bro, that, that's three to four years of a guy we do not want. So you got to pay us to take him out. That almost always results in give us a first, give us a young guy, we'll take him almost every time. So wrap your heads around that cry about it. I don't really care. That's how the deal is going to have to go. It's the business of the NBA. I don't know if you guys, uh, another light note from the reports today, I think from Fisher's report was that they're much more likely to just be targeting fringe kind of guys, uh, which uh, I know you guys are sick of hearing it because I'm sick of hearing it. But it, once again, we're trying to just improve on the margins. We're not trying to improve anywhere significantly, just on the margins. We're trying to pick up a role player for 10 cents on the dollar and hopefully it works out. I don't know who that they were referencing. I, I'm just really sick of the approach. The, the cautiousness for the sake of cautiousness has got to go. It, it's a sickening mindset. It's a sickening conservativeness for no reason. Uh, go pick a fucking player that you like. Go pick a good player that you like. Whatever it costs, just, just pay up. Is it De'Aaron Fox? Cost three first-round picks and a couple young guys and, and some salary filler? Make the fucking trade. I, I mean... What what the fuck are we doing here, man? We, we, we're going to have to waste salaries, uh, waste, waste picks getting off of Fournier, and you want me to worry about uh, what an actual good player might cost. If he might cost an extra first, or, or you know what I mean? I mean I'm fed up, bro. Like, well, I mean, what, we're going to trade for another another 3 and D guy I got to talk myself into? Like, just give me an actual good player. Is that not the plan? I, I thought we had all this cap space and now we suddenly don't. And now, and now what? We got to finagle our way out of this. Uh, it's a little bit upsetting. I'd like for them to make a real upgrade just once in their cowardly lives. Just go out there and find a very good to, to, to great level player and just make the fucking trade. Just make it. In terms of value, you have enough young guys and picks and salary to make it work. Figure it out. It's not my job to figure it out. It's your job to figure it out. Figure it out. I'm upset. I'm just upset about reading that they want to improve on the margins again. Well, what margins? Yeah, they need more than a margin. I we spent 20 minutes talking about a guy that was signed to be the third best player, and he's just not not even close. So if they want to make the playoffs and actually move past the first round, I think it's time to start thinking about De'Aaron Fox, even Miles Turner to bring back up. These are guys that are available. Cam Reddish, I've brought up a couple times already. The Hawks are out on him, or not out on him, but they're willing to move him is my point. you got to start thinking of these moves. Stop bringing in, I don't even know who would a marginal player be right now, but if it's not moving the needle, don't even bother. Just stand pat and bench somebody. I, I just, I don't get it. I think we're, if we say we're always two years out, what are we, like, who are we waiting for? Donovan Mitchell's not coming. Devin Booker's not coming. Zion's not coming. Like, stop saying, like, oh, in 2024. Like, at some point, you got to live in the present. And I feel like we forgot about that in, like, the last five years. So it would be nice to, you know, change it up for once in a while. Yeah, like, I I don't get the whole marginal thing or looking for – I don't even really know, like, like Mike just said. I have no idea who that player is. I have no idea who that marginal player is, that role player that we're going to add here, and he's going to come in here and make a big difference. Um, I don't, I don't even see that. We, we literally just gave Obi Toppin nine minutes last night. So who are we bringing in here to be marginal? Like we shouldn't, we don't even have room for that apparently. So any move we make needs to be for a very good to great player, plain and simple. It needs to be a needle mover. And if it's not going to be a needle mover, then yeah, just develop the guys you have and put the right guys on the floor. But yeah, I, I like I'm not gonna get ex excited about like a Dorian Finney Smith trade or like I don't know who they're talking about. Like I don't know who that could be. 
but like that's not going to make the difference it needs to make um sacramento fans i i definitely eavesdropped in a twitter space the other day where it was titled like sacramento where do we go next and they were in there sounding like they were in dire straits and they were all universally ready to move on from De'Aaron Fox. Um, I was listening to a Nate Duncan space earlier and they were talking about different trades that could happen. Uh, they talked about Jalen Brunson. Um, I don't, I wouldn't really want to trade for Jalen Brunson because he's about to be a free agent in the off season. But I mean, Hey, like at this point, I just make, make moves that make sense and that have a direction like where, okay, this is what we're moving toward. But yeah, don't make like, play fillers or moves to say you made a move like making a move to say you made a move is going to piss me off so like and yeah we've been stockpiling picks all this time like all those like you know say what you want about d'angelo russell whatever but when he was available i think the hypothetical whatever the hypothetical trade was none of those people are on the team anymore like those those assets we couldn't let go like none of them are here and they're picks that we have plenty of picks. We stockpile. Okay, cool. We've, we've drafted well, so I like using them. But we're not even really playing the guys who we draft, like, and we have to develop those guys. We have more than enough young pieces already. So, like, just we don't need to be hoarders. Like, make a move. Make something happen. Yeah, I mean, the only name uh, that I was remotely interested in as any kind of a, a margin-level guy is going to take a, a flyer on a Cam Reddish in the event that you were going to clear the playing time for him. I would and, by that, and by that, I mean getting uh, Evan Fournier gone. That to me, and I'm not even a big Cam guy. Mike knows this. I, I didn't really like him coming out of Duke at all. I didn't really buy him at all. Uh, I have liked what I've seen from him recently. So at least in that aspect, I would like to believe that, you know, there's more credits than I was given to him prior to that. And maybe he could be something, but that's that's like the only margin move that I would be pretty into. Everything else for me right now is you, like I whatever. Like uh, sure, okay, C- come in. Hopefully, work out. I just don't care. It, it's not even about the name anymore. It's about just like the production and and margin. Guys aren't going to like fix the issues that are going on in this team to me. But. Uh... I mean, look, uh, that's about all that we've got this week. Uh, I know we're a little fired up coming off of a win, which is not really what you want, but this uh, this Fournier situation has got to get straightened out. I mean, really simply put, it just – it is what it is. It, they they got to figure it out uh, at this deadline, and if not this offseason, but, re- you know, they got to really do some major tweaks schematically and, and with his playing time if that's the case. But um, – you know, I mean, ho- hopefully they get this thing together, at least with the way that they're going to have the pecking order with the offense, with Randall and RJ running things like we saw last night and, and Fournier being more of an afterthought and playing less. But remains to be seen. Uh, what are we, 18 to 20 right now? So hopefully we keep riding a little bit here. And uh, I don't know. I mean, we got a pretty decent stretch coming up. We'll, I think we can win some games.